Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Franci, and I am your host, and I want to begin by saying thank you for listening. On this show, I am having conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some amazing and extraordinary results in both their life and business. My intention is to inspire and help you learn and grow by having my guests share their journey of how they face and overcome their challenges, but also how they celebrate their many wins. And now let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Steve Bartell, is a real estate expert and entrepreneur with a passion for making a difference. At just 18 years old, he sold 859 homes as a realtor and went on to control over $1 billion in real estate as an investor. He also started nine multi-million dollar companies and helped 487 coaching students create $2.2 billion in equity. In his free time, Steve has built entire villages in Haiti through his foundation and is dedicated to creating a better future for his four children. After a successful career and five years of retirement, Steve is now focused on building a $5 billion real estate and business empire to positively impact the world and dismantle an educational system that stifles creativity, independent thought, and keeping an eye out for Steve. He will be making waves in the next 10 years. And after my conversation with Steve today, there is no doubt. An amazing story, amazing passion, amazing insights. Let's get this show started. Steve Martell, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thanks for joining me, my friend. My absolute pleasure, Patrick. It's been such a long time. I know. You know, it's interesting that, you know, we met a few years ago in Vancouver and it was great. You kind of had me at hello. You're uh, a pretty cool cat, uh, a big doer. You're real estate, business, self-development, professional development. You just kind of do it all. And I always like to start because the introductions never do my guests justice. When somebody says, Steve, what do you do? What do you got for an answer these days? <laughs> it's such a funny question because, um, you know, I, I kind of debate that myself all the time. To me, you know, as you say, real estate investing, uh, I've controlled quite a lot of real estate throughout Canada and the United States. You know, the last decade, you say we just we, we recently met. Time flies, man. We didn't have all this gray hair back then. I think yeah, that was over didn't. a decade ago. I think that was like 10, 11 years ago. No, it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago, but it was, yeah, but it was okay, close. It okay. was a long time ago, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, uh, for me, it's about creating cash flow in my family. That's really what it comes down to. So whether it's using the tools of real estate or using the tools of business, I just enjoy going out there in the markets, failing, purposefully failing, trying anything I can until we get it right. And that's what I do. So I've achieved extreme successes. Um, you know, I think the latest numbers is I've controlled over a billion dollars worth of real estate in the last 12 years. And that goes from tiny little foreclosure homes to mega gigantic $100 million project, deep development project, vertical and horizontal. And my passion is really studying the economies, 
looking at where things are going up or down, and then identifying the perfect strategy, whether it is through real estate or not. Now, in the end, I've always gravitated gravitated around real estate. I just, you know, it's humankind's third biggest need. After water and food, we all need shelter. So it's hard to go wrong. And, you know, you'll hear all these stories, especially right now as I'm speaking to you. I'm in Orlando in one of our Airbnb properties. And I'll bump into a lot of people. And the conversation and narrative right now is markets are crashing. Everything's going down. And the fear has started settling in. And nobody's doing anything about it. And for me, as our great friend Warren Buffett has said, is... When there's blood on the streets, it's time to buy. So right now, I'm really focusing on seeing, on spawning these opportunities. But I always gravitate towards real estate because of its need. Doesn't matter where around the world you are, shelter is mandatory. So I'm a real estate guy through and through. So when you look at what's, let's talk a little bit about what you see economically going on and where is your focus when we look at. You know, you're in Orlando, Florida is one of the hottest states. And I don't mean that temperature wise, although that could be true. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's a very hot real estate market in Florida, uh, given the, you know, politics and, you know, just the leadership that's happening in that particular state. Then we come back to Canada. You're in both, you know, you hang out in the U.S. and multiple states. You happen to be in Orlando. I get that. When you look and come back to Canada, are you seeing similar opportunities between the U.S. and Canada? I agree with you, by the way. I mean, we're seeing the same fear. We're also seeing investors, you know, kick off to the sidelines. And I say investors. I always use that term loosely. It's more of the speculators who were, uh, you know, Correct. really the geniuses in the up market. And now we're starting to see this slump market take over. And, you know, those speculators are out. They're getting, you know, they're really getting flushed out. So, but where do you see the opportunity for you when you're looking at the economics? Is it Canada, U.S., both? Is it about the strategy? Give me your kind of philosophy you know, around that. Absolutely. So I have always had reservations investing in Canada. Always. And the climate is just not the same. We hear it all the time. America is the land of opportunity. And I want to reiterate for all our listeners here, I am a proud Canadian. My, my four children are all going to school in Canada. Um, so but I am not here to insult anybody. I just want to talk on a factual basis my hesitation of investing in Canada. And I could totally be wrong. But the climate is just different. Canada is not built for entrepreneurs. It is just not. It is very possible. I've built many companies in Canada. Don't get me wrong. But there are so many rules that are not written for the entrepreneur. They are written for the average Joe to be able to survive. Rather than America has the entrepreneurs, it gives the opportunity for entrepreneurs to thrive, not just survive. And it goes from policies as simple as being able to roll over your profits rather than having to pay capital gains after every sale. I could go on into the pyramid of how to go into an apartment starting from scratch in America 10 times faster than I can in Canada because I have to pay capital gains immediately rather than being able to double down on my investments into a larger and larger portfolio. 
So just for everybody wondering, that's the 1031 tax exchange deferral program. So rule 1031 of the IRS. So now we're talking on a political standpoint. I really don't want to go too deep into that because I have very strong sentiments about that. But yes, as we talk about Florida, Florida was one of the first places to reopen up after the catastrophe that COVID and politics all did, right? We don't want to talk about that either, but they were the first ones to open up. And it's incredible, Patrick, for me to go in a restaurant here in Florida, I have to stand in line. It don't matter which restaurant. It doesn't matter if it's a Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. If I want to go to a restaurant around 6 or 6.30, it's jam-packed. Don't matter which one, no matter if it's a you know high-end uh, Gibson Steakhouse or it's just your regular uh, Red Lobster. There's lineups everywhere. Well, you've Still got, back home. well, but to say that, you know, so let's, let's, let's just unpack this a little bit, you know, so first off, you know, back to where you started, it's not that you haven't invested in Canada, you have, but even as I got to know you when I first met you, and then as I followed you, you're always been really uh, bullish on the US. I agree 100% with you uh, in terms of the entrepreneur and the business in the US versus Canada. Uh, Canada it politically has, uh, I shouldn't say has never, but certainly since Trudeau's been in, has not been uh, favorable for business and entrepreneurs. Uh, that's Correct. my view of it as well. I think SMEs struggle because of poor policies and, to your point, big tax grabs. So I don't want to get into political conversation, but I think we have to put that on the table and 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 why you are doing what you're doing. And I think it's important for listeners to understand is that you know what you did as and you're a young man. I mean, you're not. Uh, you talk about gray, but at the end of the day, you're still a young man. And you, you know, this has been many years ago that you really took on saying, no, I'm going to do business where it makes sense for me. And that's really cool foresight. And so you ended up in the U.S. So I, I just wanted to touch on that. And then as we see what's happening in the U.S., there is it's very regional, no different than Canada. So what's happening in Florida may not is certainly not happening in some of the other states, some of the Correct. blue states, as we talk about sometimes, uh, because of their own their own political policies and, of course, what they've done around the pandemic and the regulations and or belief system, if you will, whatever that might be. So, anyways, absolutely, uh, did, did I recap absolutely. that right? Very, very well said. Absolutely. Because there's so many more elements to it than just the political climate and the reasons for investing. But you're 100% right. So you're not hanging out in California as it would be a great comparison, right? I mean, that's like 180 degrees. Yeah, exactly. Definitely not. I mean, at the end of the day, I would simply be at the same place in Canada if I would be going in California. Taxes are very similar. The 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 laws, the politics, um, they're not built for the entrepreneur, and they're not very lenient. If I want, you know, you had a great post uh, this morning, I believe, or maybe last night, but I saw it today about the difference of applying for permits from start to finish. Oh. And what's ironic is taking a look at that list. I literally see the political cities going from now it's opposite in Canada, but going from red to blue and over to the uh, sorry opposite blue to red meaning you know if you're in a political climate that if the mayor of a town is left you're waiting for those 30 days uh, 30 months to get your approvals got through well calgary 
can pass it through right away because we understand that we need this housing. And I don't care if you're going to make money off of it. It benefits everybody at the same time. So we can talk forever on those things. But you're absolutely right. One of my very important strategies when it comes to investing is I will look at what is the political climate in said state if I'm going to be investing. And Florida is a tricky one because it's always been a swing state. It's becoming more and more on the Republican side. And I believe it's going to stay there, especially if Santis. So they're really becoming Republican in here. And they're proving that their strategy worked because Florida is thriving compared to everywhere else. I'm a huge fan of DeSantis. It's like I'm a huge fan of Danielle Smith in Alberta. You know, there's leadership there. And, you know, anyways, we, we can digress into that political conversation. I don't mind going there, by the way. But I want to, I want to, you know, as we look at what you've done and what you're doing today, I want to go back a little bit in this, Steve, because, you know, what my observation of you when I first met you, you're a young guy that is very bold and fired up about doing what you are doing. And even back then, you know, you're coaching, you've got your investor groups, you're speaking in public on doing deals on multifamily, you've created a cool tribe, you really are supporting others in investing success, but you make it fun, you're doing bus trips, like you're you're fired up, like you're like a, a, an energizer bunny on steroids, like it's crazy. <laughs> so now I'm not suggesting that, you know, you have matured and, you know, with four kids, it doesn't slow you down a little bit, but I, I doubt that. Uh, no, but let they me only fire me up more. <laughs> yeah, they fire you up more. But so tell me around this, Steve, is, you know, where does that come from? You know, one of the things that we talk about on the everyday millionaire is, you know, what is do you think is the difference from you or somebody else? You know, why is it that you get inspired or you're fired up and you see this? Is it genetics, as in were your parents entrepreneurs? Where do you get that kind of entrepreneurial spirit from? And give me a little bit of background about, you know, siblings and or family and or why the hell are you this fired up entrepreneur, you know, business coach, all the things that you do? Where did that come from? Fantastic. I would love to. So I'm going to answer in two parts. There's where it comes from and what keeps me going today. So let's go at where it comes from. So I've been very, very fortunate. Middle house, you know, middle income household but with parents that were entrepreneurs. The best gift I have ever received in my life is knowing that Saturday and Sunday is when we make money. Mm. As opposed to Saturday and Sunday is when I open the TV and start watching it and, you know, just it's my day off because right. it's not between the times that mine goodbye. Mm-hmm. I was polar opposite. Mom was a real estate agent. Uh, she'll be real estate agent. So we keep talking about young. I'm 37 years old. Mm-hmm. And she had started a year before. So she's going to be almost 40 years in real estate, retiring slowly right now. Uh, but I grew up in that world where my mom was a hustler. And my mom was a woman in a man world back then. I mean, talk about you know the 1980s, 1990s, having a woman realtor that would have to deal with an a-hole broker that knows it all and trying to teach her. And you know what I mean? Like just Mm -hmm. very aggressive. So my mom not only had to fight as a real estate agent to become successful, she had to fight as a woman. 
Right. And that helped me extremely when I came to turn 18 years old and I wanted to be a realtor because fast forwarding very fast here. But for me, uh, one of the big things that really changed my life is in 2000, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. So I was three uh, stage 3B cancer. So I was taken out of school and I fast realized that I was capable of doing my schooling in an hour and a half per day. That was a, the first and foremost important lesson when it came to schooling. And that we'll talk a little more as we go into what motivates me today. But schooling, an hour and a half a day, the rest of the time, I was thinking, I may die at any time. I went through death, my deathbed twice at that time during cancer. And then I had to go back to school six months later. And I couldn't. I had such a hard time in school understanding its logic. Why is it taking eight hours in a day to learn what I learned in an hour and a half a day when I was being homeschooled at the hospital? So fast tracking to it really got me started to think, do I want to fall in the trap of going to college and university to waste four years when I could potentially get a head start in real estate as a realtor, because mom's a realtor. And I've been shadowing her since I'm a kid. Now, my dad did join real estate as well, probably 15, uh, I would probably say now 20 years ago, but a little further after my mother. And uh, anyway, so I decided to jump right into real estate because I just understood that I couldn't control my paycheck rather than going at a nine to five and getting paid hourly. So it just didn't make sense to me. I can't analyze it more in depth. It just, it wasn't logical. Because at the end of the day, I had a, a dose of reality of how life can be really short. Mm -hmm. So I hate saying this because most people will not understand, but having cancer was a big pivotal moment in my life that I am grateful for. I am grateful for it. it. caused a lot of rippling effects of my health. But at the end of the day, that is the best lesson for a stubborn person like me to go through. So I jumped into real estate as a real estate agent at 18 years old. And because my mother had to fight her entire life to be respected equally to everybody else, I knew the little tricks at 18 years old, how to be respected by these big brokers that have been in real estate for 30, 40 years. And then I was able to escalate. But I, while I was in, in the cancer ward, I, would, I fell in love with reading and learning. So I would do an hour and a half of schooling, but then I would jump into learning marketing, learning business, learning how everything works in the business world. And that's what propelled me to go into real estate and, uh, you know, did extremely well as a realtor. Uh, but my first year as a real estate agent at 18 years old, I still live with mom and dad. I managed to sell yeah, 70 homes and the average realtor sells five. So I was a boy wonder that was crushing it because I implemented marketing strategies that other top successful realtors in the U.S. were doing. And then I just grew and grew into a, I opened my brokerage that I, uh, uh, anyways, I, I decided in 2007 to stop it all because the repercussions of cancer 
created a heart attack. The mixture of cancer, the mixture of working 16 hours a day, having my son being born, he was born in February, 11, uh, February 2008. So I was stressing, oh my goodness, now it's not just about me. I have a kid on the way, which by the way, I had at least four doctors tell me that I would never have a child. Now I have four. But now I was fighting for a different reason and then the stress just got to me. And because my arteries were a little weaker, because of radiation, uh, but again, it gave me just a slap in the face. When everything was going well, we had our brokerage was making over $2 million a year. I'm 22, 23 years old at that time. So I am crushing it. But doser reality hits me again. And I start thinking, wow, it's not just about money. Because my dad took me aside when I had the heart attack and he said, Steve, what's the point of being the richest man in the grave? Mm-hmm. You're 23. You've got to slow down. So to me, I took it in a different way where I started studying leverage. So I was in real estate, but I was doing it all myself. And then I started realizing it duplicated through other realtors. So instead of me going out, I would focus on the marketing. I would focus on doing some phone calls to do some cold calling and booking appointments for the realtors. But at least I had my really, I didn't have to move. I, I, I was in my own house around my family and I could still roll the business. But then there came a time. Uh, so the heart tech was in 2007, but I'm going to go back one year. So back in 2006, I was traveling a lot, going to conferences for real estate agents. So there was a big, big realtor back then, super popular, Craig Proctor. He had the buy this home. Uh, oh, sorry, I'll sell your house. And if I can't, I'm going to buy it myself. And I was a big advocate. I was gimmicky as in a lot of people can think it is. His systems were lost. So I would travel a lot, two, three times a year to these conferences. And every time, you know, you want to network and I'm talking to all these realtors and they keep telling me how they're struggling selling homes right now. And these short sales are crushing them, dealing with the banks, turning into foreclosures. Here I am talking about, what's a short sale? I don't get it. I'm a realtor. I sell more homes than pretty much everybody in this entire room, 5,000 people. I don't know what a short sale is. And then I'll hear somebody saying, yeah, now I'm stuck selling $40,000 homes. Where can I find $40,000 homes? In Canada, even if you have a power of sale, I still have to sell it for its actual value. If not, the homeowner is going to come back and sue the bank. So in the end, I'm listening to these people. You can buy a duplex for 40 grand? What are you talking about? So this is going in my head. Now, 2000, I did nothing about it. 2007, I'd have a heart attack. I decided to take quite a few months off. And uh, one night, I'm playing Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Cashflow 101, very popular back then. You bet. And here I am playing, and I'm picking up a car. You come, up, you come across a $48,000 duplex. You need $600 down. And I'm playing this game, and I'm like, oh, it really sucks because, you know, it's like playing Monopoly. It's cheap. It's fun. There's strategies. But it's not the way the world works. You can't buy a $48,000 hole. So I drive on, I can't sleep. I'm Googling online. Okay, the realtor two years ago, a year ago, told me there's $30,000 foreclosures. So here I go, Ottawa foreclosures. Of course, nothing pops up. Cheapest house you could buy back then was 150 grand. 
I keep Googling, keep Googling, and nothing was popping up. So here I say to myself, okay, let's for fun go U.S. foreclosures. And after you start going through all the pitches and you know people start trying to sell you stuff, I started, I fell upon, I can't remember, let's call it realtor.com back then. Honestly, I can't remember what site. But all of a sudden, I'm seeing all these places, 20, 30, 40, 50 thousand dollars. All right. So then I go to Google for a second thing. How can a Canadian buy U.S. real estate? Couldn't find nothing. So the heart attack was November 2007. So let's say the entire year of 2008, studied and studied and studied. How can I buy real estate in the U.S.? How can I understand the terminologies? What is a short sale? What is a foreclosure? What is this process? How can a bank give a mortgage for three hundred and be okay selling it for forty thousand dollars? Oh, they already sold it off to a bigger Wall Street firm. They declared the losses. It's actually a win for them to sell it at a loss. Interesting. And then I keep digging and digging and digging, and. We pulled the paperwork very recently. I pulled the trigger on my first property in Atlanta in February 2009. So that is after the crash. And ironically, I was in Atlanta in 2008 when the bottom hit. Lehman Brothers closing down and then the stock market, you know, I think crashed ultimately a month or so later. I'm sitting at the... uh, can't remember the name of the hotel, but anyways, it's on the roof for free breakfast. And uh, I think it was Marriott and the points you get to go up there, you know, whatever. And I'm watching CNN or one of the news channels, everybody in this room is freaking out. And all I could start thinking is, I'm just going like grin and I'm like, shut up. Like, this is what I was waiting for. And I kind of had a feeling it was going to happen. At what extent? I had no idea. I did not study emerging markets. I did not study emerging markets or the economy that well back then. I just had a gut feeling that if everybody's talking about these foreclosures and short sales, something's going to happen. So I pulled the trigger in 2009. I sell the brokerage to my parents for a buck. Just take, please take Martel's real estate. It's yours. You know, everything you've ever taught me. It is the reason I was able to build Martel's real estate. So please, thank you. Uh, sell, I suspend my broker's license and I go full-time in real estate and flip 45 homes in the first year. So the strategy at that time, because I didn't realize it then, I was just doing it, right? I was, I was like, my nose was stuck to the ground versus really observing 10,000 feet above and really studying the markets. And I just got lucky at that point. So what I was doing is I was buying a $30,000, $40,000 home in a marginally okay neighborhood that I would put another $30,000, $40,000 in and would sell to an FHA buyer. So FHA, Federal Housing Authority, uh, it's a government guaranteed. I know you know, Patrick, just to make sure everybody mm-hmm. can follow yes, us no, here. Um, so it's guaranteed mortgages by the government for lower income households. Yeah. So what was happening is these thirty and $40,000 homes were unfinanceable. So somebody that was an FHA buyer that said, hey, I'm a handyman, I'll get a loan for the $30,000 home. The bank said, no, banks only lend on pretty homes. So I decided to turn them pretty. And I was able to resell them 110 to 125. And that margin of forty to fifty thousand dollars was amazing because 
I was rolling it over to another property and another property and another property. Yeah. And again, to your earlier point, you, I, I got about a million questions, but that's that's fine. So the but to your earlier point, when we go to Canada, you're in the U.S., you're not paying a capital gain on that flip. You're actually being able to take that capital, put it back into real estate, do the next deal. And that's I mean, it's a distinctive point that we bump up against, and especially in Canada right now, when they're constantly hammering affordable housing. We don't have it. Uh, we don't have enough housing. We don't have enough rental housing. They put all these barriers, development permits aside and the process of development aside. That is a key that would speed everything up if that was a possibility. Anyways, I wanted to just hit that point. Please carry on. Oh. Hundred percent. Now, just a little disclaimer for everybody as well. At the same time, there are specific rules. You can't just put it in your pocket. Said yeah, yeah. when you want to reinvest, right? There's a process. Uh, but so I want to put out one more important point. I was doing all of this from Ottawa, Canada. Mm. Now, if I talk to somebody today, say I buy real estate site on C. All right, cool. I take my iPhone. And I FaceTime my contractor. Hey, can you just bend over, show me the baseboard? That looks like the scup. I don't like that. Can you please fix that without having to drive there? Super easy in 2023. Sure. 2010. <laughs> Man. Okay. iPhones were out. No contractor had an iPhone. It was flip phones. And if I would get a video, it would be like the most distorted thing you could ever imagine if he could upload it to the internet mm-hmm. back then. So it was very, very hard. So I had to create systems to overlook my contractors, somebody that I can trust to come. So I get a home inspector to approve the draws and make sure he can send me pictures. And it was so complex towards today. I can I can do my due diligence on any house within a day now with the technology that we have, right? So it, it's just interesting. But um, so anyway, so I did that. And then the opportunity arose to close on a 50-unit apartment complex in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So here I am. And it really never, honestly, it never came to my mind, Patrick, because again, as a naive Canadian as I was, an apartment complex to me is going downtown Toronto, looking at the 70-unit high-rise and saying, that's an apartment complex. Canada is not structured as much. Uh, we don't have a, a, as many apartment communities. And I didn't grow up in those worlds, in that world. So I was very naive to an apartment. And it was intimidating thinking, I'm going to buy an 80-story high skyscraper. I'm going to need billions of dollars. Little did I know that an apartment community is just a piece of land that they decided not to subdivide. It's really that simple. You can have some some sections in Florida that is considered an apartment community and they're all little bungalows. I was so clueless about that. So I never even thought that reaching an apartment complex, a 25-year-old-ish at that time, was even possible. But again, got educated on the process and only to understand that it's actually... Now, some people get mad when I say this, but it is way easier to do an apartment complex deal uh, in the right climates. Today is almost impossible. I hate saying that, but we can have a conversation about that too. But back then, it was easier to get an apartment complex done than it was to do single family homes all the time. Mm-hmm. Banks are very different. I got 100% financing on my apartment complex. 
100% because the climates were terrible and this was a toxic asset in their local, uh, a little local credit union. And they, uh, which at the time was inhibiting them to lend out more money because the more toxic debts that the banks had, the less they could lend out. So at that time, I was able to convince the bank to turn their toxic asset into an income producing asset. And that's how I was able to do it. Now, of course, I had to prove that I had down payments for the renovations, but I took all my profits from the 45 homes I flipped and I put a large majority into it and just flipped the building. And then I never looked back. Apartment after apartment from Texas to uh, almost everywhere towards, um, I, I took a pause in 2018 and we can, I mean, I'm skipping a very large portion here, but I just fell in love with apartments, repositioning undervalued apartments. I've got a bunch of questions, but just a quick question here is apartments uh, and these complexes, these apartment communities that are really kind of popular in the U.S., notorious actually in terms of the communities. Uh, is that still your focus today? And the answer is no. The reason is as of around 2019, real estate apartments became bonkers. So my strategy between 2011-ish- But just hang on 2000, a second. Just let me interrupt, Steve. Bonkers, what sure. does that mean in terms of bonkers? The Pricing? Competition hmm. was ridiculous. For those assets, so, yeah. Exactly. If you reimagine what happened to real estate across North America, the world, mm -hmm. during COVID, because of all the free money, Take that into the apartment world, even pre-COVID, because what was happening is large institutions started getting so much money because they got frightful of the stock market. Every economic sign was saying stock markets are getting up there. The bond market was returning absolutely nothing. So Wall Street started investing in real estate. Previous to 2018, I never had it to, I never had to compete but against an institutional investor because my focus has always been under 150 units, literally because of Wall Street. Meaning my target was 50 to 150 units because it was too big for the average show above 50 and it was too small for the institutions. So the competition was very, very little. But as 2018 started rolling around, they would outbid me by hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I'm looking at the analysis saying, I just can't. Why would I buy a negative cash flowing business compared to what they're doing? Mm -hmm. And what started happening is the institutional investors st started buying for pound, not for cash flow, not for value add. They just wanted to hold that real estate, period, at any cost. And it just drove the market out. So I was unable to, I'm sure if I wanted to spend months and months, I'd be able to find one, but it just wasn't worth my time. So I took advantage of that though. And actually, ironically, I'm wearing the shirt now, uh, but I opened a construction company. Mm -hmm. So I sat down. So I, I like, you know, deconstructing. Where's the money at today based on the economy and what's happening in human psychology? And I sat down and I said, all right, I am incapable to compete against these big guys. 
But there's one thing that there's not enough right now. People supporting these big guys on the other ancillary businesses that happens. So I opened a construction company and not even within three months, we were flipping 75 units per month for other institutional investors. I was making more money in that construction company than I ever did investing in real estate. I knew it was short time. I knew it was short lived. I knew it was going to be very, very small amount of time. But between 2000, late 2018, right up to COVID, that's why I said that's it. I'm closing shop. I'm going back to Canada. That's it. Ah, watching it in construction because there was so much stupid money, so uneducated. We all think how Wall Street is so smart and they're so sophisticated, but they're trillions of computers. They were buying stuff that no one should have ever touched. No one should have ever bought. And we are, we're not even feeling the repercussion of all those stupid purchases. Well, there's we're a, starting in, to. Yeah. In the background, BlackRock, for example, is feeling some pain. They're cleaning some things up. Uh, those are all interesting kind of when you look into the future, it's hard to say how that's going to unfold exactly, but it's definitely going to unfold. There's going to be some things that and it unravel. Won't be pretty. Yeah, it won't be great. Now, I want to go back. Uh, you said a lot and really appreciate all the insights into what you've shared. I think there's a lot of learning in that. But I want to go back to a couple of points that I'm always interested. It's kind of my nature. You know, when you talked about your heart attack, you had cancer, you were talking about you know, long work days, you know, seven days a week, you were really pushing hard. Now, I have a fundamental belief, you know, and that is that the universe sends us message, messages, God, whatever you want to say, and we never have to worry about hearing them because the volume will get turned up. So it will manifest, you know, so when you think about your, you know, your health uh, challenges and the scares that you had, and they were very real. When you reflect on that time, were you ignoring certain signs pre-heart attack? Were you ignoring certain signs pre-cancer? Were you, you know, how do you kind of look at that time prior? And in hindsight, can you say, you know something, I should have listened. So if you were passing on a message to somebody, is there a message there that based on your experience that you would say, hey, listen, there's some things that I ignored and that I should not have ignored? Is there is there a story there for you or not really? Absolutely. So the, 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 the quick answer is listen to your body, period. Your body will send you those messages. As you say, it's not going to be a note in the mail. It's not going to be an email. It's not going to be a text message. It's going to be a feeling. Something's off. It could be as simple as bad nutrition. I'm having too much salt and I'm feeling lightheaded. Or it could be something as I'm feeling pains. I'm feeling something. I'm having a hard time breathing. Or I'm having a hard time walking up the stairs and going to my bedroom without being out of breath. Absolutely. Now, going back to the the, the real question is, you know, when I had my, my heart attack, I'm sorry, cancer, I did not. I was 15 years old. I was a 15-year-old boy. Sure. I knew everything. I was invincible. I was undeathable, you know, and I was an extremely athletic person. I, I you know, at my high school track and, and field events, I would win first at everything except for 800 meters that I won second place. I was in martial arts, second degree black belt. I was extremely fit, extremely active. But it's funny because 
It was other people that noticed it, not me. Mm. And there's one, mo- one, uh, one of my best friend's mom saved my life because, you know, she was, I, I was at a, uh, a cottage and I'm playing tennis with my buddy. But I was out of breath. I, I don't even remember it, but this is the story that they were telling me is they're bringing me back to them and saying, see, what's going on? Are you eating? Are you doing drugs? Are you, are you like, no, nothing. Healthy, no smoking, no nothing. As, as perfect as you could ever imagine. And I said, everything's fine. Can you promise you're going to tell your mom to go to the hospital? Yeah, yeah. Come on, come on, whatever. Anyway, she went behind my back, called my parents, saying something's really off. And my mom says, I know something really is, but that gave her the motivation to bring me to the hospital. And then that's where, you know, I just talked to the doctor and I happened to, he, he thought it was mono, he, you know, very common at that age, yep, very, sure. very popular. But then I happened to mention, oh, I coughed. I think I coughed. And I uh, said, oh, that cough, what is that? I'm like, God, how long have you been coughing? And then it was my dad that was with me in the room. And, uh, and this is just my general practitioner. And uh, quite a long time, actually. And then he says, let's do this. Let's do an x-ray. Not even three hours later, they call up and say, you are going to go straight to the um, ch- uh, Children's Hospital Level 6 Oncology. Mm-hmm. Here's the, na- na- the naive out of us. We're French Canadians. And oncology is not a word you know in French. Yeah. And it's not a, a word you, you know, it's not in, in your, the books you read or whatever. We had, we're just sitting there in oncology and I'm just like, you know. My parents started realizing because everybody walking around didn't have hair. Mm. I'm naive as naive could be. Invincible. Don't even talk to me. So there was no real signs. And to be honest, Patrick, during the entire process, at that age, it was easy. I am so sorry to say, but it was easy uh, because I had the support of my parents. They didn't allow me to be sick. They didn't allow me to complain. They didn't allow me to just veg on the couch. You're going to do something. Come on, I don't care if you have cancer. Let's go. Let's go. Let's take a walk. Let's move. Let's let's get no. And it's my mom that gave me positive thinking books uh, in French back then, and I don't know how it would translate, but uh, the art of the subconscious mind. And you know, then I would start listening to Bob Proctor a lot. I would also listen to a lot of Tony Robbins, and then, so the mentality I never felt like I was a sick child, and I never resented it. It, 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 it was just a vacation for six months. And I don't want to say that to insult anybody, guys. It, it is a terrible, terrible thing. But I, I had the advantage of being worked on mentally hardcore. Well, you had youth. Now, was it you easy? Had, yeah. You, you, I mean, you had youth. You had the naiveness of, of, of that youth. And, uh, you know, you just carry on. What's it's, death? It's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. You don't even think of it's death. The road. You, you probably not even had anybody in your family uh, die, you know, so you don't really relate to it at that age. I totally, exactly. I totally get it. What about the signs of the, the heart attack, Steve? Now, that one's different. I was burning out and I knew I was burning out. Because I was at the beck and call of my clients over and over again. And that's what really fueled me and propelled me afterwards to go into the investing side. Because I was getting tired of making so much money for my investors while I'm slaving my ass at 1030 at night finding the perfect real estate investment deal for them, only to call first thing in the morning. We got a hot deal, Patrick. Oh, Steve, I can't. I'm in Hawaii, man. You know, uh, 
can, can I can I come and check it out in three weeks from now when I'm back from vacation? What do you mean you're on vacation, bro? You got to do this now. Like the markets are so hot. This is an investment. I've been working all week to try to find you the best one. The numbers are right. It works. Sorry, bro. I'm on vacation. You know, I don't need it that bad. Man, did it piss me off. Yeah. It really, you know, of course, with a professional smile. All right, man, I understand. It's cool. But deep down, why am I the one slaving and doing all this work when he gets to do what I want, which is the vacationing part of it? Uh, but going back after, as you mentioned, right, during, I knew I was still getting burnt out. I was tired. I was falling asleep. Man, when, uh, when Jake was born, I was falling asleep. Like I would get up at night, try to, you know, to take part in the, in the raising Jake. And I was falling asleep, literally standing on his crib and I was burnt out. And then of course you don't have time. You're eating McDonald's, you're eating the easy, convenient foods. So my health, my, my drinking alcohol, you know, I get home. Oh my God, I just want to drink. I'm so tired right now. So every single little thing, uh, led from a burnout to a, my body was just too tired because the heart attack that I did get was an anomaly. It was not a clogged artery. It was not, it was a pinched artery. Mm. So it was the weirdest concept because my arteries had just recently gone through radio, uh, right, uh, radiation. My arteries were not, they were hardening a little bit. And then I, the doctors explained it to me, but what happened is I'm watching a movie one night and a glass of wine. It's I'm watching a, a Lou Rodeo comedy with uh, Larry the Cable Guy. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, and, and Larry's telling a joke, and it was just dragging on. It wasn't funny. And then the punchline drops. I start laughing so hard. But after I exhaled, nothing came back in. And then I fell, and I don't remember anything. But thankfully, my wife at the time had uh, was a, uh, a nurse. So CPR, call 911, and she saved my life that wow. day. Uh, but it was an anomaly because the, the, it was 100% blockage. Yeah. And uh, it, uh, the, the moment uh, the ambulance came in, shock, 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 maybe some, like, I don't remember any of it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. anyways, uh, yeah, I'm comatose. I don't remember nothing. Uh, but anyway, so it, it, every sign was there, Patrick, every sign. Any educated, not educated, any person that would just take a second Pay attention. to listen to their body, exactly. You would be, the signs were all there. You know, and I don't know if you knew this, you, 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 you may, and you probably do, given that you had a heart attack. You know, we always, uh, I don't say always, we often attribute heart attacks to men, but statistically, more women, women have heart attacks than men. It is, I think it was at one point, the number one killer of women was heart attacks. And I went, oh my gosh, I, I didn't know that. So anyways, that's just a side note that I happened to pick up on because of uh, a friend Absolutely. of mine whose mom, healthy, uh, had a heart attack and passed it at home alone. So you were very, very beneficial. It was awesome that your wife was there. And I mean, the good news was that she was a nurse. So that's, that's cool. So I exactly. Wanna, so something else I picked up on, and, and I think this is so important. And there's two parts to it. You know, you talked about your parents giving you the books to read. You know, you start to get on that journey of mental kind of development, mindset kind of development. You're listening to Proctor and Tony and all of those guys. But there's two parts to this. Number one is that you mentioned that 
you go in and you're 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 expecting to fail and or you're happy to fail because of the learning curve that puts you on that in itself is unique you you know i know that failure is just part of being an entrepreneur you're going to try stuff and it's not going to work you know you're going to go i have no idea what i'm doing here but i know what i want to I know what the outcome is. I just don't know or what the outcome is I want. How to get there, yes. Yes, I just don't know how to get there. So you're trying different stuff. But, you know, give me a little bit of background in terms of that component of failure and understanding that failure was what you need. You've been a coach over the years. I've been a coach. I still remain a coach. And I will sometimes ask people, you know, what is your biggest fear? And they go, fear of failure. So here's, I'm going to make a comment. So I open up conversation even a little bit wider. And, and I believe that people, I've come to believe that people are not afraid of failure. They're afraid of the judgment of other people should they fail, should they not get that outcome. Therefore, they actually don't do it because they're afraid their friends, their family, their peers are going to judge them. That's my theory. And uh, so I'd like to hear your view of that. But tell me a little bit about that whole failure concept and uh, absolutely what, what you see with people in terms of their failure. They're 100%. So you are 100% right on when it comes, especially in the adulthood, when you're a little older and you people judge so much, whether they support you or not. The biggest fear is to hear the words, I told you so. Mm-hmm. You'll never hear it when you're successful. You'll never. But you'll always hear it in your fails. But I want to go a little further back on the failure aspect because I have, I will confidently tell anyone I've mastered failure. I don't care what you think. I don't care, you know, what what the general census is because I am determined to try no matter what. It's a lot better to try than to not do it. And even if I do fail, I'm 10 steps ahead of anybody else and I can learn from it. But it goes a lot more than just fear of failure. It's fear in general. Our society is built on fear. Look at YouTube. If you don't want to be a attention-grabbing bait clicker, you're not going to be successful. Why? Because people are afraid or people just naturally gravitate towards fear. Mm. And the problem is that it's it's such in our DNA nowadays, right? It's in our DNA from tens of thousands of years. We have to be fearful because the person that is as the most fearful and plans ahead will survive when there's T-Rexes walking outside. You have to anticipate the worst and plan for the best. You have to. And in the end, we just, it, it's our minds. That, that's what I'm really trying to get to. The trouble that we most have as human beings is we have this gigantic organ in our body that nobody understands yet. We understand a tenth of it. We're starting to talk about mental health issues. Like it's just, we're just on the cusp of it and we don't understand how that works. But the thing is, is we live in our heads, the what is, the worries, and all these stories we create in our heads that have a 90% chance of never happening, but we believe it as a fact. And I'll give you a, a story that just happened about a week ago. 
So we're at another of our condos from in Daytona Beach. And unfortunately, it was so uh, I, I, you did ask, what am I doing now? And we'll talk about that a little later, but I've got a lot of Airbnbs right now. It, it's the only thing that cash flows, in my opinion, uh, very, very well yeah. for a very short period of time. But I'm taking advantage of it anyways right now. So anyways, we're in Daytona Beach and somebody last minute books my house and I'm like, crap. I was here, but of course they're paying me three thousand bucks while I can go to the hotel that has a water slide for my kids and have some right. So the story and the point I'm getting to is there's this. So we're at this is New Year's, literally. So there, there's the timeline. It was New Year's Eve, and my daughter looks down off the balcony. We have an oceanfront uh, uh, condo, but you can see the pool of the resort, and it has a little sliding, very small slide. But it twists and it's a water slide that goes into the pool. She bugged us to go on that side. She was looking at it. Oh my gosh, look at everybody having fun. No, I'm bad. I want to go. I want to go. I want to go. It just didn't work on New Year's Eve. New Year's Day, 6 a.m. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. So excited. And by 10 o'clock, maybe 10.30, finally, you know, New Year's Eve or a little or New Year's Day, we're kind of sleeping in a little Slow, bit. Yeah. A little groggy, exactly. So we end up going to the pool. And now she sees it from the ground up rather from 10 stories down. Mm. And she refuses to go. And I said, Ariel, what's going on, honey? I really don't want to go, Dad. But I think that is way bigger than I thought. Ariel, you were so excited for the last 24 hours. You bugged mom and dad to really want to go on that slide. Look at everybody going. It's obviously safe. Nobody's going to go in danger. And she refused to go. Mm. And I had to be the world's work. I can't say worst dad because I think that's what every parent should have done, but I'll be judged for this. I said, Ariel, you are not stepping foot in that pool. We're going to sit on this chair and we're going to look at every kid having fun in the pool until you go down that slide. No, dad, I, I can't. And she starts crying. She's very mad at me. I said, Ariel, there's one of the most important lessons in your entire world. You never let a story in your head stop you from achieving what you want. Finally, she did it once, and then I let her do whatever she wants. She didn't want to go back a second time, and I did fight it, but mm-hmm. at least she did it. Mm-hmm. But that fear that she created in her own mind, and she let it simmer, she just it got bigger and bigger and bigger. The what ifs, the this. I don't even know what she was sticking in her mind because I didn't want to re-bring it up for her and traumatize her. But she probably had stories of drowning or falling, hitting her head on the slide. The stuff that her mind will create is outrageous. And it goes the same way when it comes to investing, to starting a business, to do that move that you wanted to do forever, but your spouse doesn't support you or your friend, you're afraid that your best friends are going to laugh at you because they laugh every time you bring it up to try to a little side hustle on the side. I want to do drop shipping on Amazon. Oh, and you know, that's all scammy. You're going to get stuck with all that stuff. What do they know? What do they know? They're just giving you opinions that they've never tried it. Do it. Fail. Screw up. At least you'll have a great story once your whole words. At least. And then the next time you try to do something else, the resistance will be a little less. And then the next time will be a little less. And the next time will be a little less. So, you know, when it comes to fear, absolutely, we're so afraid of people laughing and mocking at us. 
when we all have the same insecurities, at the end of the day, they're just jealous that you actually did it. They'll laugh, but people are bullies by nature. They will laugh and insult you to make themselves feel good. Who cares? Who cares? At the end of the day, there's going to be one person in that grave, and it's you and you alone. You can't let that stop you. So that mind barrier is the most important thing. And that is what, so two things I've studied over the last decade. So since 2008, uh, since 2020, actually, last three years, I've pretty much done nothing except for reading one to two books per week. I've, I have a library of 5,000 books now, uh, a, a very, very good uh, influence of mine back when I had cancer had uh, introduced me to thinking that, no, my mom introduced me to thinking she gave me Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and he gave me two or three other books. And uh, uh, because it was a client of my mom. So anyways, now he's moving to Edmonton from Ottawa, and he has a library of over 10,000 books, and there's 5,000 in there that were all business books. I said, please bring that. I have a passion for reading, and I have a dream of having one of the world's biggest entrepreneurial book collection. Because so many of those books, we know how publishing work, they'll keep 10,000 and then they take it off the shelf and it's gone. There's so many rare books in that collection. Anyways, I'm digressing here, but in the end, uh, I've studied economics for the past 5,000 years. In the next downturn, I want to be able to know what strategy to do with these economic sides, knowing that the last 10 years went like this, knowing that the 87 crash went like this, knowing that the you know, Greek depression went like this, knowing here's how the Roman and the Roman Empire collapsed by printing too much money uh, or diluting its currency. But my point is, is I studied the economy, but number two, my real passion, Patrick, is studying the human mind. What makes us do what we do, or more importantly, what holds us back to doing what we should. And that's what I've really been studying because if you look at, you know, you mentioned I, I had a seminar company and I was coaching a lot of people. And I dissected the 487 coaching students I had that were extremely successful as a group, but there was still about 60 of them that never ended up doing anything. And I really, really wanted to dig into why didn't they? When 400 plus were extremely successful with my strategies, why was it that around 60 people were not? And it all came down to mental mm -hmm. or environments. They really let their environment guide them to not take action. It's so interesting environment. You know, you created an environment for them with 400 other people, but their uh, their day-to-day -day environment wasn't supportive of their own progress. And, you know, you can't stress enough to people. They have to assess their environment and make the changes. And having said that, a lot of people just can't see it. They, they, you know, they're immersed in it. It's, you know, the age old question, you know, somebody asks the fish, how's the water? You know, they go, what water? It's really when you're immersed in that environment, you don't know that it's, you know, maybe not healthy for you and that it is in fact toxic mentally. So I, I really, you know, align with that whole process. I don't want to take this off on, I want, I'm going to take this off on a bit of a curve because I think that you know, one of the things I study a lot is the economics of what's going on, the research, the analysis of what's happening, not just ca uh, Canada, because I know that the U.S. is a big factor and of what happens in Canada 
on a you know on an economic basis. Uh, most people or many people don't realize just how big a factor it is. But when you look at what's going on economically, U.S., Canada, whichever kind of path that you want to take it on, you know, where what are you seeing in the future? What are you looking at today and going? This is going to be really painful over the next few years do you see yeah it's not going to be so bad but then it's going to ultimately get worse what how do you see it like i've got my view and i'm happy to share it but what's your view of it steve so to answer quickly is i think it's going to be a colossal crash of unproportioned estimates that anybody can ever imagine right now i am a big big ray down no fan and it's listening to his market cycles, his short-term cycles, and his long-term cycles. Mm-hmm. I accidentally fell into his short-term cycle theories without even realizing it because his short-term cycles are buyer's markets, seller's markets. You know, I don't really believe in balanced markets. It's, it's always either going up or down. But that's how my last round to building my portfolio worked is by studying short-term cycles. But what Ray Dalio's education, he's got great books, he's got amazing YouTube videos on it. What I never really studied was the long-term debt cycles. And what has to happen when a nation is incapable of lowering its interest rates anymore, they must print money to get out of the hole that they're in. They must. If not, what would have happened during COVID? The world would have collapsed, maybe. When you talk about looking at it, so I'm a big Ray Dalio fan as well. A couple other guys that I've really come to know and follow. I actually had a guy by the name of Mark Moss on my podcast. And Mark is awesome. He's brilliant. You know, Mark is really brilliant. I, I gotta get him back on the show again. If I can, he's you know, he's elevated to, you know, be this kind of uh, you know, guru of what's happening economically. Exactly. He's his research is amazing. Just a great guy, by the way. Really, really nice guy, smart. So I agree with all all of that. But when you say about an epic meltdown or whatever language you want to use, are you looking at that on the U.S. side of it? Or are you looking at a global economic meltdown, given what's happening, Russia, Ukraine, U.K., China, Taiwan? Are you studying the geopolitical issues, the macro, and then kind of distilling it down to how that's going to impact U.S. and Canada? 100%. So it's a two-part uh, answer on that. Of course, North America is my main study areas of studies. But between you and me, I really look at America because whatever really happens in America, at this point, I believe will happen twice as hard in Canada because Canada never got its readjustment in 2008 that it should have had. So we are way above and beyond at a very terrifying place because the economics is so simple. If you really boil it down to, is it affordable or not? Can people live? If not, you go down to revolutions, look at the countries that aren't affordable. And, you know, it's just a total meltdown. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen here, not at all. But on any, I look at both. But unfortunately, what happens to the world, what happens to the U.S. will happen to the world because it is the world's current reserve. That's the big thing. Countries are going bankrupt right now because the dollar has created, has gone up in so much value that people that are borrowing in American dollars but being paid in pesos can't pay back their loans right now. And that's what's happening on their side. But I'm not studying it as much as, I don't even want to say as I should 
because it, it gets, you get a headache at one point. <laughs> I get headaches just studying. Dude, I'm on that page. Trust me. You know, I'm, I'm, it's crazy. It is, it's crazy. It's intense. Like, yeah. Biden just printed another $1.7 $1. billion secretly during December. What are you doing? Like, seriously, man, this is why inflation in 2018, uh, 19, I wrote a report. Uh, no, 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 no. COVID had started. I wrote a report in 2020. If we are to continue printing, this is after Trump had printed the first CARES Act. Biden came in and wanted to do a second and a third and a fourth. I said, guys, we're going to 10% inflation. And that's what they're going to tell you because we all know CPI is manipulated and diluted into reality. Like it's not even real what they're, they're, they're saying out there, but it's going to create extreme, extreme inflation. And then what's going to happen? They're going to have to skyrocket the interest rates to be able to counterbalance. And right now, we've got no one that has the balls that Volcker ever did. Now, climates were very different. Debt loads were very different. You can't really compare apple for apple. But the only way to fight inflation is to raise interest rates higher than what it is, period. You got a 10% inflation, you need 11% interest rates. You know, that's one model. <clears throat> yeah, but yeah, and I, and I don't disagree to one degree, and that is this. We have to look at interest rates and understand the impact of interest rates on, for example, housing and on the gen general cost of living. You know, but when we look at raising interest rates, given what's happening on a global macro scale, we're not going to U.S. or Canada, uh, definitely not Canada, raising interest rates isn't going to change the price of oil and it isn't going to. You know, it isn't going to change the price of food given the price of oil. You know, ultimately, people really don't relate to the fact that oil drives this world. It will continue to drive this world. Oil prices are not going down anytime soon. And as a matter of fact, I, based on my own research, I think oil prices will actually rise later in 2023, which is only to say transportation costs will continue to go up. And again, you know, this impacts just about everything that we do. And, uh, you know, even as simple as California, you know, banning all trucks pre whatever year it was, 1980, because they don't have a blah, 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 Emotions, you know, they're not yeah. environment, but you, you, the largest state, you know, is, and uh, so much stuff is exported from California via truck. It's going to just get expensive. So that's all a long winded way to say that when we look at interest rates, they do have They'll have a degree of impact, but they're not going to really ever bring down interest to the 2% goal. I think that has become so out of touch and such a ridiculous yeah. narrative makes me freaking crazy. And, you yeah. know, the sanctions that they're putting on Russia, I just saw a stat and it was a really interesting chart about what India. OK, so we put all this pressure, you know, the, the U.N. and the world goes down hard on Russia, sanctions, sanctions, sanctions. Well, how did that work out for, you know, the U.K. or the EU? But India, India imports are like 100x from Russia. It's a straight up line. E nothing, nothing. Bam. So Russia continues to do business. Putin's not stupid. You know, he didn't just wake up one morning and go, I'm going to, you know, go. I'm uh, invading. You know, I'm going to take on Ukraine. No. And he knew what would happen. He knew the fallout to, to most degrees. He's a politician. He's a smart guy. Well, whether you think he's crazy or not, he's still, you know, he's still a smart dude. So it's all to say this is that when we look at what's going on economically, there's so many global issues that are going to impact, not the least of which is, to your point, 
U.S. reserve. You know, that's that is our you know reserve currency. And whether you know the U.S. dollar today is a little weaker or this you know this past couple of months. But so my question to you around all of this is, I don't see how they can stop printing money. They're going to make an excuse to continue to print money. You look at what's happening with you know the Ukraine war. All of a sudden. The U.S. is putting more money into the Ukraine than they are into their own freaking backyard. People starving. Yeah. It's like Canada. What the hell's Canada? Where are we that we're going to write a you know five hundred billion dollars or a hundred billion or whatever that number was? It doesn't really matter. You know when we've got you know people going to food banks here because of rising costs. So it's all to say this: when we bring that macro picture, bring in Ray Dalio, look at the politics of it. It's hard to paint a, a really optimistic picture. So from an investment point of view, are you waiting for that meltdown to occur uh, aside from real estate? Are you doing some other stuff? So no, I am not waiting because we could be waiting for 10 years. Yes, exactly. We don't know. Yeah. So you're referring to basically, and I don't want to put these words, correct me if I'm wrong, in your mouth, but you're referring to the possibility of MMT actually working. The ability to just print debt yep. continuously over and over and over again. Yes. And the real answer is we are in uncharted territories. The debts have never been so high. We've never printed so much money. And the interest rates we're seeing it right now, the damage it is creating. The old school books, the Volcker books, as I mentioned, is, well, we raise interest rates to X level and everything will go down. But we didn't have the debt loads back then. Right? right now, the car repo market is absolutely in turmoil because there's more debt in cars than there's ever been before. Credit card debt is higher than ever been before. For household, we don't know. We are the world's biggest social experiment. We really are. Because oil, on top of inflation, oil, as you say right now, is unpredictable-ish, um, depending on political with the wars and everything that's happening. But the problem we have is there's no alternative technology that can replace transportation right now. We just don't. And we all need oil. And even to build that technology out, you need oil. That's the fundamental you exactly. know, underlying foundation. Now, will oil go away someday? Nah, I doubt it. Maybe. Will it, can, you know, will it be offset by EV? Probably to some degree. But it's not going to happen in a timeline that you know, is going to shift what's happening today. You know. And on a planetary basis, because, all right, it's cute and fine that Canada and the U.S. are starting to buy a lot more EVs and so on and so forth. But we've got developing countries, as you just explained, what is happening right now in India. They're starting to get all these cars and all these motorcycles, and they're starting to build the middle class, just like China did. They need more oil than we've ever needed before. So, yeah, oil ain't going nowhere. Guaranteed. Well, and, and, and China, and I mean, at the end of the day, China and Russia, you know, got a, a deal inked together. And while Biden was sitting on his ass, uh, you know, hey, trying, hey. To, trying to play off Saudi Arabia the, and OPEC, what they do? They went over, they inked a deal with China. Like, it's like, okay. Screw this crap. You, know, exactly. you snooze, you lose, dude. I'm out. You yeah. Know, whatever you want to do. Think, I think that's going to be something big, Bricks. Uh, you know, with Brazil, China, Russia, South uh, South Africa and now Saudi Arabia coming in, 
they have the world's biggest global reserves. Right now, the one solution that could potentially happen is a currency that's finally backed by gold. It's not the smartest, as you say, because now you can't print as much and so on and so forth, but they don't need it. But, you know, there's a, that's an interesting conversation, right? So, you know, because I follow it, um, you know, I'm looking at what's happening in gold. So central banks have bought more gold in the past six months than they have since whatever, 1957 or something, whatever the number is, doesn't really matter. They're loading up on gold, China being one of those countries. India has always been driven by gold. You know, that's a thing that they're doing, uh, you know, Putin talks about how much gold he has, but nobody even knows if it's true. Like he's he's playing the numbers smaller than they actually are. Yeah, and China. Yep. Yeah, and China. And and at the end of the day, we see BRICS nations. There's other countries now applying. So we're starting to see the division of East and West, if you will, start to grow. Uh, there's certainly some concerns with China on what's happening there economically, which will impact us because are we going to be able to produce the goods that they can no longer produce? You know, the fight between them and Taiwan and then chips and all the things that go on. It's, it is a very complicated and complex issue, and it leaves me scratching my head. To your point, MMT, modern uh, Modern, um, modern monetary, monetary theory. theory. Thank you, thank yes. you. You know, and I think it was Ray Dalio that gave a really great example of printing money. You know, he said if you're on an island and there is only three bottles of water, you will pay whatever it takes for that bottle of water. If there's a ship, you know, fifty meters off the coast of your island with millions of bottles of water that they promise they will deliver at, at your beck and call, what is the value of that water? It is strictly a supply and demand issue. And you know what, we're, what has been happening is they're creating this demand for this money, but it keeps, now it's getting watered down, watered down, watered down. And there we have the fundamental problem, of course, of inflation. So as much as we you know, we see the politicians and the central banks, to your point earlier, we think they're so freaking smart. They're not. They're just really dumb. The whole point of printing money was to help the lower class. Who's the one that's hurting the most today? Mm -hmm. Who did printing money help the most? My assets all doubled in value. 100%. Well, they can't buy food right now. Yeah. It's upside down, right? It's obs I'm getting, I'm pissed off right now. <laughs> oh, yeah, I get fired up. And then I get and I get fired up. And then you get into the politics of what's happening in Canada. And you see, uh, you know, Trudeau and that whole wokeness that the left has gone to. You know, I've always been, you know, kind of center. I, I would say I would, uh, you know, if, if somebody asked me, you know, years ago, I would have said, no, I'm kind of a, a conservative liberal or a liberal conservative. I was kind of along that line. I'm, I'm a capitalist at heart. I'm an entrepreneur at heart. But I also, you know, I think it was Brett Wilson. Uh, Brent Wilson said, you know, use the term compassionate capitalist. And I've always looked at that. And I know that you would be in that same kind of 100%. mindset is that, yeah, I'm here to make money, but I'm here to help the community. I'm here to support others and not pull people down, but to build people up. And then when I see what's happening and unfolding right in front of us over the past, particularly the three years, and like seeing all this rush to the far left and how we speak or not speak, and where the hell did the White World Economic Forum come from? Who the hell is Klaus Schwab and why? Schwab, exactly. He, what? Was, he, what? Was, he was never on my ballot, ever. 
I, I never yeah, voted. Well, I mean, I didn't vote for the Liberal Party, let alone Klaus Schwab. So I'm going, yeah. what the hell is going on? And this is where a, a lot of underlying fear lives with people in general. Somebody like you, somebody like I, you know, myself, we research the shit out of stuff, right? So, you know, as much and try and have some framework, some context for what's unfolding. And, you know, there is a place where the general public listen to mainstream media. I don't, I have, I've turned on a mainstream media news for, well, years, but certainly in the past three years, I just shut it off. I can't, like, it's just such bullshit. These just scripted conversations. So that's the kind of things that push my buttons because what are we here to do? I mean, we're here to have a great life and to support other success. You and I are both built that way. We coach, we teach, we are in fact entrepreneurs, we are capitalists, but we see what's unfolding right in front of our eyes and we can't control it. So how do we actually not just survive it, thrive in it, protect our families, make a difference in the world, look into the future. Anyways, I don't know where I'm going with that conversation. You know, it, it gets me so fired up because like you, it is just shocking to see what's going it's on. I want to piggyback on what you're saying because that links me to one of your first questions. You know, what gets Steve fired up? What caused it? And where, and I told you there's a second part to it, how it motivates me to keep on going. I am so sick and tired of the current status quo. I can't even explain how sick and tired I am. And politics is a cult. Canada, I've always been an educated person following what's on the up and up, even as a realtor. Never, ever would I have a heated debate on left versus right and, nope. and having all these conversations in Canada. You know, it's like, you know, that our, we've got the center and then you know, you've got the right and you got the left. And then the U.S., you've got the right and you got the left. And then, of course, it's extremes. Yeah. But I am so with you on, you know, when somebody asks me that I just hate every party that is existing right now. And I don't I, I can't say that. Sorry. The ones we hear about. OK, so the, the Republicans, the Democrats, or the liberals and the conservatives. And I don't even want to talk about Canada right now because I'm so afraid of the direction it's taking right now. Very Marxist, very, you know, there's, there's just, I don't want to get there. But on the American side, also, I cannot identify myself as a Republican or a liberal because both are freaking embarrassing. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I have a fiscally, was yes, I'm a fiscally Republican. OK, mm -hmm. I believe in helping entrepreneurs because the more you help the entrepreneurs, the more jobs we create. Mm -hmm. The Democrats, they want to give free money. And what does that create? Dependency and entitlement. That's terrible. It's a terrible model. But then I hate that by on the on the Republican side, I can't talk to somebody that's gay. What are you talking about? That is against everything they believe in. Come on, bro. Just get some slack. This is 2023. But then you go on the left and all this whoa stuff. Whoa. You're telling me I can't use the word brownie anymore because it's insulting. It's a color, bro. Like, I didn't. Or, or, or even the, the, the Merry Christmas. We just went through the holidays and somebody was insulted when I said Merry Christmas. I didn't say I hate your religion. All I said is Merry Christmas. Relax. Let's take a deep breath. And this takes me to where. I am so sick and tired of this status quo driven by the media that keeps pushing it through fear. There's just a lack of self 
awareness, a lack of the ability to think for ourselves. We let the TV think for us. We let our parents think for us. We let our neighbors think for us. Rather than just sitting down, taking a cup of coffee, and just really understanding what is happening. I have people that are very close to me. I won't say who and names or whatever, but I have people that are very close to me that uh, they do documentaries, but they're extreme left. And I asked that person, I said, listen, when you do documentaries, right, very successful too, do you also study the right to really create a good documentary that is filling both sides of the story? No, never. Why would I learn the other side? And you lose my respect. How can you create a good documentary that is well-rounded with real facts if you're only focusing on one side of the story? And to me, that loses respect. But that's how everyone is today. You sit at a table, then you're going to have a straight line in a battle between both sides, and you just can't talk about it. It's insane. Three topics we are no longer allowed to talk about. Politics, religion, and COVID, right? It, it's insane. It's crazy how the world is so divided, and they're all wrong. They're all wrong. Now, do I have a solution? No. I'll never do politics, man. Honestly, it is, I don't know how, like, I keep laughing in Ontario how Doug Ford is still alive just by stress, you know, like, all the stress he's taken. And whether he's right or wrong, I don't care, man, but he's aged 25 years in the past two years just going through these politics. And he ran again. I'm like, oh my God, I don't have a solution, but I want to educate people. I want to really show, and, and it doesn't even have to be around entrepreneurism. I respect somebody that truly wants to work at the government. It's fantastic. I believe you're leaving a lot of your potential on the table. But I'm not going to disrespect him for it. As long as you're not naive, as long as you take a few minutes to really dissect thoughts that are going are coming out of your mouth, because 90% of them, well, why do you say that? And we can't even answer it because they heard it from their neighbor. That's a, that's a fundamental problem, right? And I, and I think you nailed it. And, you, you know, my wife, Stephanie, and I do a part of our everyday millionaire podcast that we call mindset matters. And we actually have this conversation. We just released a podcast that we were talking about confirmation bias, for example, and really understanding that, you know, the divisiveness and the polarity is almost seemingly intentional by our politicians. And, you know, we get into the discussions often, well, we, I, we don't get into them, but over, you know, certainly over the past three years, it's been very apparent. There's the vaxxers and the anti-vaxxers and the COVID and the anti-COVID, and there's this divisiveness and this polarity. And at the end of the day, I've, you know, come to the conclusion, and I don't know if it's a conclusion, it was just the way I'm built. Quite frankly, I don't care. Like whatever your decision is, it's your decision. And I don't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that decision for myself, but I'm not going to make you wrong for it. I'm not going to judge you for it. I can literally sit back and go, I don't really, it doesn't matter to me. Whatever your decision is, your decision is. I don't have a fear, for example, uh, being in a room with somebody who's not vaccinated or somebody who is vaccinated because both of them have arguments that it's dangerous to be in that room, right? And, I, I, you, <laughs> yep. know, you know, so I, I'm just like, okay, hold it, settle down. You know, I take my health extremely serious. I look after myself that way. Why does, you know, the the whole 
narrative around somebody who's vaxxed or not vaxxed is being driven by mainstream media, which is being driven by politics. And it just makes me absolutely crazy. And so there's a lot of conversations now about forgiveness and how can we ever forgive them or them, you know, either side. And at the end of the day, you have to forgive. Like we have to forgive whatever it is. You got no choice. You, you know, that it's just so unhealthy not to have that space. Anyways, I don't know where I'm going with that conversation. It, it's just a messed up world right now, Steve. Uh, let's go back to let's go back to you know from an investment point of view are you doing anything other than real estate in terms of building a portfolio are you looking at uh, bitcoin for example have you considered precious metals we talked about gold uh, silver of course comes into that perhaps platinum i mean there's other things uh, are you doing anything outside of real estate in terms of building your portfolio so correct so basically i like to have my little book sorry Cash, I'm, not, I'm very fearful of cash a lot of the time, but I feel like uh, no matter what happens, we're still kind of sh secure in a certain way in the U.S. and in Canada. So I've got my six months reserve if the month, you know, the world melts. And then, of course, I've got my gold and silver. That, that's been in my safe since I can't even tell you how long now. I've always had it. Uh, I would have anticipated gold going skyrocketing over the COVID period, and it did not. I really truly thought, you know, okay, it's just sitting at 1600 and hit the 2000. I still thought it would have crept up sure. double. I really did. Yeah. Not anticipating that Bitcoin would have grabbed that money that was supposed to go there and brought it into Bitcoins, right? Bitcoin stresses the crap out of me, man. And this is a personal choice. It stresses me too much. If I have to look at my phone hourly to know what's going on, I'm not, I'm not the right person. I know you're supposed to buy it, sit, shut your mouth and forget about it for the next 10 years. I can't. I can't. I, I, I never look at gold. I just know I, I have it physically. So it doesn't give me that stress. But when it comes to the Bitcoin, uh, so I'll, I'll tell you how, uh, whether it was lucky or not, I believe it's because I've really studied the economies. So I did extremely well in the last two years, uh, two and a half years. The moment COVID hit, I jumped in Amazon like you couldn't imagine. That's where I went. I said, listen, everybody's stuck at home. There's only one person working right now, and it's Amazon. And then it, it, I got out probably uh, 2021, mid-2021. It had started going down, and I said, I don't see a trillion-dollar valuation. I just don't see it yet. They're not even freaking profitable. Mm -hmm. So it didn't make sense to me, but I read the speculation wave because there's enough people out there that'll do it, and I made a crap load of money. Same thing with Bitcoin. So Bitcoin, July 2020, I believe, or 2021, I can't remember. It was at around 12.5. And I said, you know what? I see it as being undervalued. I will. I don't believe in it. I will not play with it. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to stay and I won't do anything. Yeah, that didn't work because every morning, you know, I'm checking the price and, oh, it's popping, it's popping, it's popping. And when it went to 40, I said, I don't see it. And knowing that there's so much free money that people will need to withdraw to start living soon. I'm taking out because I have a feeling it'll crash. It went to 72. I was so pissed. And then call, bam, crashes. And I said, yes. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Good for call. everybody that didn't go that way. I just, but it stressed me too much. It just stressed me too much. I never have to look at that on a real estate standpoint. So I've got my hard stuff, but that's literally if World War Three, you know, breaks out, yeah. I can figure to live with my family, take care of the kids. We can eat. 
we're good to go and I'll create any other business. So I've got that side. And where I started in the real estate, I don't want to say I'm investing in real estate because the Airbnb stuff I'm doing right now, I'm not even buying. I'm doing the arbitrage thing. I'm calling up landlords. You're, 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 you know, you're an oceanfront property. You want five grand a month. I bring it into a software that tells me, hey, this property will do 150. And I just keep picking up properties. Yeah. But then that led me into right now. I don't think it's confidential. I don't need to make, say who it is. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. Is this confidential? No, it's not. So I'm looking right now at buying property management portfolios. So I'm kind of doing the shortcut of instead of going once here, one there to do and build my Airbnb portfolio, I'm just buying entire packages. Yeah. So because my, my, my thought process is property management is inflation proof. We'll always need to manage. Yep. And correct me if I'm wrong on that side. That is, I'm literally in the due diligence process. I haven't closed on anything. But I'm, I'm, my feel is if I pick up a thousand units under management within what specific area, I've managed over 2,200 units. So it's not really a big deal for me. I hired the book, a really good head regional and they take care of it. So that's where I'm doing on the business side. For real estate, though, there are still some very interesting opportunities that are rising as we speak. So foreclosures in Florida right now are up 25% year over year, number one in America. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of really good foreclosures that are coming onto the market where according to my math and where the economy is, even if a 50% crash happens, I still have value. So my goal right now is I am starting to pick up. I haven't closed on anything yet, but I'm in Orlando right now checking out one specific area that I know very well um, in Winter Haven, if there's value for the listeners, that Legoland is secretly expanding gigantically, gigantically in that specific area right now. And there's a lot of properties that are going in foreclosures because it's still kind of a rough area in some specific areas. So my goal is to grab it, put some lipstick, rent it long-term, see how the economy goes. When it's time, let's rehab and let's flip. But for now, we want to pick up as many of these little ones and twos and threes, hold it long-term, see how the economy goes. Because at the current foreclosure price, I am more than the 50% potential crash that will be coming, I'm thinking. Cool. That's great. Now, what are you uh, just uh, curious in terms of when you're looking at these acquisitions? Are you raising capital for them? Are you buying them out of your own existing business cash flow, if you will, or uh, whatever that might look like? Are you Or are you raising capital from investors and putting it all together that way? So uh, two answers to that. So the Air- Airbnb portfolio cash flows so much that I'm able to pick up three property a month and still live 20 grand of all easy on, on the cash flow. Mm-hmm. So the cash flow is, is such a cash cow business. Uh, but again, for people to understand, it's a hospitality business. It is not a real estate investing business. Yes. Very important. And you got to manage the shit out of that. Worlds. You, you got to manage oh the my crap God. out of that. It's hard work. Absolutely. So it is not for everybody. You got to have a, 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 I'm big enough to outsource, but not outsource. Sorry. I have my own management company now and they take care of it. So we're, we're totally hands off because we've got volume, but it's not for everybody. So we've got that side of it. I'm in the process right now of creating a $5 million fund in the U.S. So I've had my fair share 
of Ontario Securities, Cal, uh, Al, uh, never, never Alberta, because Alberta is one of the best in there, but BC Securities. I mean, I've been in court with almost every single province there was in Canada. One, every single place except freaking Quebec. They're so upside down. <laughs> yeah. We won't even get into there. But yeah, it wasn't in French. I lost. I couldn't win that one. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so uh, I really wanted to create precedence. It cost me a lot of money to do it. Uh, I did great precedence for people, you know, redefining what is raising capital from friends and family or somebody that is not of the public. So we really did that. But I still, still going back to the first question you asked me, the climate in Canada versus the U.S., I'm still doing it in the U.S. The fun is in the U.S. Unfortunately, it's only yeah. going to be for Americans. I want nothing to do with Canadian uh, securities. Yeah. They're so upside down. It is yeah. so upside down. So um, raising funds to be able to pick up all these properties, correct? Beautiful. Okay, well, you know, Steve, uh, you've given me a ton of your time. I want to start to wind things down here a little bit. And I do that with some, well, we call them rapid fire questions. They're never that rapid, but uh, let's <laughs> let's start to wind things down. Appreciate the insights that you've provided us today and uh, lots of learning in all of that. So thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Fun. So, so um, you know, as we wind things down, I'm going to ask you a question. I already know the answer to it, but we'll ask it anyways. You know, Android or iPhone? iPhone. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite movie that you kind of dig? Anything that stands out for you? And it can't be the classic dad answer, whatever the kids are watching. So what is your what is your movie it will always be entrepreneurial movies i can't say i've got one in specific but i was training my sales team this morning we're talking about focus with will smith great fantastic movie just to really see how you can really alter the mind he uses it for manipulation but you could do it for the great as well founder great movie uh the story of mcdonald's and the creativity mm, behind it yeah both of wall street both of wall street so as good. much as again illegal but he is one of the to this day, yeah, and I'm a sales trainer. He's one of the best sales trainer there is out there. I hands down, great, great movie. And then you've got the classics, of course. Um, you know, my, I I used to be a big John Travolta and Nicholas sure. Cage fan back yeah. in my days yeah. and stuff. But the entrepreneurial movies that motivate me, got it. That that remind me why I'm working so hard. Music. You have a favorite tune or a favorite band that you go to. I've never been into music. I always have music in the background, yep. but it's always focus music. So my playlist is on on Apple Music. I listen to pure focus. Yeah, Baroque. There we go. And uh, when you get to the gates, if there's a, such a thing as God, what do you want to hear God say? Believe in yourself. Beautiful. Period. Period. I have a hard time with spirituality. I, I haven't dug into it as much as you know, I'm not, I'm not at that point in my life just yet because I feel like it's just a natural gravitation. But at my point, I have a hard time with it because it suppresses the belief in yourself. And all I would hear, want to hear is believe in yourself. Don't rely on serendipitous things that could potentially happen. Have faith in yourself, believe in yourself, and keep on pushing. Beautiful. I love that. Hmm. I could I. No, I wish I would have brought that up earlier because that's such a great topic. Okay, we digress. <laughs> we digress. Your room, your desk, or your car, what do you clean first? Always first thing is my room. Got to make the bed. Fa <laughs> Got to make the bed. Favorite swear word? 
has to be fucked. I, I, when I when I'm passionate about something, I'm not a swearing person, but get me passionate about something and fuck this, fuck that, and, <laughs> and, and it, it just creates that interrupt, and people exactly. just oh. He swore it must be more. It's like an exclamation mark of some sort, I think. You know, that's really what it is. Um, yeah, absolutely. And my final question, what are you grateful for today, Steve? The family. My family that I have, my wife, Crystal, who's motivates me every single day to keep on going because we are going to change the world and build a fantastic legacy. Beautiful. And I, my friend, am grateful to have circled back and have had this conversation with you today and connect. And I am always grateful, like you, for my wife and uh, our life and our health. And so thank you so much for joining me on the Everyday Millionaire podcast. Uh, very much appreciated, Steve. Great conversation. Thank you, Bachelor. Out of blast. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time... Patrick out.